The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody today. Welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. We have Scott and Steve, our program hosts. You can check in with them if you have questions about the center or come up and say hello at the end. And usually at the end end of the month, I remind us all how the center operates and really kind of the foundation. And it really connects with the chant that we did at the beginning, this practice of generosity. But it's, uh, it's always a little bit more subtle and ultimately more real than, you know, we have these superficial ideas of me as a generous person. So right from the beginning in 1993, when we started the center, um, we wanted to sort of run the place in a traditional model, like the, some of the monasteries in Asia, where it's not a sort of in the business world, where there's a fee or suggested donations, but just try to <coughs> excuse me, have all the programs, all the activities be offered freely. And of course that happens because of the volunteers and the people who support the center and the teachers doing it that way. But it allows for this beautiful circle of giving and receiving where everybody feels good about their participation. So once a month, I just remind folks how that works. And the first step, of course, is when you're part doing something here at the center, notice how good it feels. I mean, just it has to be whatever your actual experience is. Notice it, that it's freely offered and that there's no expectation. You have to really let it in. And that's, for a lot of us, not such an easy thing to do, to receive a gift that has no strings attached. And when you get good at that, then you might feel like giving something, not because you've received something, because it will make you happy to give. And then follow that impulse, that intuition, that it will feel good to give back, volunteering your time, contributing money. And it's in that way that the center operates. And Common Ground has a budget like any other, you know, medium-sized nonprofit. It's around $350,000 a year, the contributions that have been coming in over the last number of years. And that comes in just because people are figuring out what feels good to give. And we don't talk about it a lot. And like I mentioned, we don't do suggested donations. We don't send out, you know, letters asking people to give. We just ask people to be reflective. What what feels right in their own life. And of course, everybody's situation is different. So you have to just figure it out on your own. But it's kind of nice that the way you figure it out is you see what makes you feel good, as opposed to like, what will get rid of that guilt feeling I have? You know, I've been taking this class. And so if you find yourself doing that, please step back and go back to the first step. No, lots of folks have made this place happen and they're offering this to me as a free gift. Let me really let it in. It's a free gift. And don't think of that as an easy spiritual task to ta- receive a free gift. It, we, we're just naturally suspicious. Wait a minute. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> so anyway, keep that in mind. And there's, of course, more information on the website. There is a sheet of paper by the donation bowl that kind of talks about it a little bit more. Or you can always connect with any of the leaders or teachers when you're here at the center, if you have questions about how that all works, um, please ask. And now one additional thing just to keep in mind, 
uh, four of us in the community, Lisa and Haya and Win Fricky, the co-founder and myself, we're going to be going out to California on this weekend for Sister Nianica's ordination, formerly known as Michelle Raymond, a longtime leader here in the community who several years ago went out to the monastery, uh, a nun's monastery in Northern California, and has been training to take her full ordination. So on Sunday, next a week from tonight, today, she's having her ceremony for the full ordination. So she's shaved head, orange robes. It's kind of interesting and beautiful to see this ancient tradition of people living this renunciate life still happening in 2017, right? And somebody that we all know, or some of us know pretty well, so if you'd like to contribute, the, you know, as you might imagine, these monasteries are just getting by on a shoestring. And so if you want to support the monastery, we're going to bring some uh, money, a donation to the monastery where these nuns are in honor of Sister Nianica's ordination. And so there's a bowl that's um, on the table in the lobby. The, all of that money will go to the monastery. And you can just write it to Common Ground, but put it on the memo line, ordination or you can go back home go to the website do a credit card donation or on the ipad in the lobby and just designated ordination and all that money will go to the sisters monastery in northern california and you can learn a lot about it the poster has the name of the monastery there's a lot of interesting stuff including the history that you can learn about there are not too many bakuni monasteries so Bhikkhu is a, a male monastic and Bhikkhuni is a female monastic in the Buddhist tradition, in the Theravada tradition. So you can learn more about that on their website um, if you're interested. And so we're talking about this wonderful book by Guy Armstrong, Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators. Those who are reading along, we're on chapter 7. And uh, in this chapter, we're looking at the causes, right, how does this sense of self, the sense of this frame, the self-centered frame, taking things personally, like everything in the universe, there are causes for it. Nothing happens without causes. In the Buddhist tradition, we always say that, like defining what, what we mean by wisdom or what wisdom does. Wisdom is that part of the mind that gets interested in how has this come to be, right? That's what wisdom does. It's curious. It wants to comprehend the lawfulness or the conditional nature of how this moment or this attitude of mind or this good thing, this bad thing, how has it come to be? Upon what supporting causes has this come to be? And without those supporting causes, this would not be the way that it is, right? If we're interested uh, interested in uh, uh, the more political, social level, injustice. How has this injustice come to be? Upon what supporting causes does this injustice continue? Right? Or in your own mind, if you have a habit towards being defensive or being envious or being greedy, lustful or whatever. Okay, there it is. I see that. Yeah, I recognize that's that, that's that familiar pattern in my personality. So wisdom is just that natural, impersonal force of mind that wants to comprehend the causes. Like, how has this come to be? How did my mind get to be like this in this moment? It just didn't drop from outer space. 
it got built, it got put together. And if the mind sees the constructed nature, sees the supporting causes, then it's possible to not go there, to have a different mind, a different attitude of mind, right? We're not imprisoned by habits unless we don't comprehend the causes. If we don't see how the mind works, the constructed nature of the mind, then we're sort of destined to be, sort of act out our predominant conditioning. And so this is what the, the Buddhist view on emptiness is different. Our normal view is, I'm this way, I'm defensive, I'm greedy. When this is happening, this is who I am. But what a Buddhist train always says, like, well, yeah, sometimes it's like this, but the reason it's like this sometimes is because of these causes and conditions, this way of looking, this way of reacting, this way of interpreting. When that is in place, when that isn't being seen for what it is, then this whole frame, this whole attitude, this whole personality pattern manifests. But if the mind didn't relate this way, didn't interpret this experience in this way, didn't react in this way, then this whole personality pattern wouldn't have arisen. Something else would have shown up in terms of how the personality is. So you see, the Buddhist frame, one of the things that immediately shifts us away from any sense of helplessness. A lot of times people misinterpret the Buddhist teachings, you know, well, it's all nature, so there's nothing for me to do. But it's just the opposite. It's all this impersonal but conditional unfolding. And the thing that the mind can do is it can understand the conditional unfolding. Because one of the most interesting and potent things the mind comes to understand is when the mind, or you could say when wisdom in the mind, isn't comprehending the constructed or conditional nature of how the mind unfolds, then that has a lot to do with what kind of mind, what sort of attitude unfolds. The not comprehending, the not seeing clearly the constructed nature of the mind is the predominant cause for our, our unwholesome qualities or states of mind. It's the not seeing how the mind has come to be that allows us to be greedy and angry and mean-spirited. So when you bring, now, because we're not that deluded, of course, but when you bring to mind somebody that you consider really deluded or really bad, you know, not helpful in the world, in your life, boss, friend, neighbor, politician, whatever it might be, can you imagine that person clearly comprehending how their mind is unfolding, really seeing the, uh, how emotions are arising, really seeing attitudes, ways of framing, and still continuing to live in that way? No. Nobody is consciously mean. Nobody is consciously evil. Nobody is consciously lost in greed. If a mind is clearly seen, then something else unfolds. You can just check this out in the laboratory of your own mind. When you notice like that the conditions are there for a lot of greed, a lot of like obsessive thinking, oh, if only then I'll be happy. 
And then just allow this more stable, fearless, continuous presence to get established in the mind and see what happens to that obsessive pattern. Does it gain a head of steam or does it begin to fall apart? What happens with all of our so-called unskillful, unhelpful, negative patterns in our personality when seen in the light of wisdom and a, a wisdom awareness? Can you be a jerk? Can you be you know, inappropriate? Can you gossip when not the mind isn't judging, the mind isn't trying to suppress, it's just the wisdom in the mind is just seeing the lawful, conditional unfolding of the mind. That would be interesting. And feel free to report back next week, you know, in the discussion time, like, oh yeah, I found out I can be a jerk and see it clearly. <laughs> and it may be true, right, like in moments, but how long, right? Because, you know, if the Buddha, the, what the Buddha understood in observing his own mind and countless people who followed in the footsteps of the Buddha found observing their own mind, that there's a very natural feedback mechanism. So when there is this sort of stable presence, wise and kind presence, and the mind, because of momentum, goes down an unskillful pathway and becomes a jerk, you know, or unskillful in some moment, what that clarity of mind is going to notice is how tight everything is, how unpleasant everything. It's unpleasant to be angry. It's unpleasant to be greedy. It's unpleasant to be envious. It's unpleasant to close down, to be helpless. No matter what the unskillful pattern might be, if it's seen clearly, the most obvious thing in that seeing clearly will be, oh, honey, this is suffering. This is dukkha, as we say in the Pali tradition and the language spoken around the time of the Buddha, dukkha, like it's unsatisfi- it's unsatisfying to be living, to be seen in this way. So it, the, there's a beautiful, efficient feedback mechanism. Same thing when the mind is relating in a beautiful way, a skillful way. Then that stable awareness, that clarity of mind sees, oh yeah, it's like this now. It sees how light, sees how free, sees how functional, useful this way of being is, this way of being kind or forgiving or patient or seeing the causes or being grateful. You know, whatever the wholesome pattern might be. And this is why it's, this path is so liberating because from a normal, more ordinary frame, we think, I've got to stop myself from being bad. I've got to make myself good. And that's a big self-centered trip, right? And then immediately I'm wondering, like, are you doing a better job making yourself good? And I feel badly because I'm not as good as this other person or I'm more bad. And right, So it, it keeps in, in the frame this comparing mind, judging mind, prideful mind, helpless mind when we don't think we're as good as somebody else because we think that I'm doing it. But it isn't true. It just isn't true when we observe the mind with some integrity, some honesty, and some continuity. We really see that both wisdom 
and the opposite of wisdom, being unskillful, or in Buddhism, samsara, like cycles or patterns that repeat that are not helpful. That's samsara, these cycles of suffering, these repeating patterns. They have their own coherence and integrity. There's something about wisdom that reinforces wisdom, and there's something about ignorance that reinforces ignorance. So that's why sometimes in the Buddhist path or teachings we say, there's no middle ground here. You're either digging the hole deeper, making it easier to relate in ignorant ways and unskillful ways, or you're getting yourself out of the hole. You're training the mind, you're creating a feedback that is constantly clarifying the mind so that the mind makes it harder for the mind to slide back into those holes of being defensive, being irritable, being impatient, being judgmental, overly critical, being greedy, needy, dependent on good things or pleasant things or the way you want it to be happening, right? Because the clarity, that kind, stable presence, it reads, it's comprehending, oh yeah, what's being set in motion. Like I mentioned, it's really hard to be unskillful in awareness when the mind is aware. Now you can, uh, you can tell yourself that you're being aware and continue to be unskillful, but that doesn't mean you're being aware. Being aware means you're actually willing to feel, actually willing to connect and sustain that intimate presence. So that means that nothing is being missed. So if something is actually some way of relating, some psychological pattern is really unskillful, by definition, suffering is being set in motion. So that clarity is going to know that. It's just like any natural system has these feedback mechanisms. That's how nature works. And that's why we say in emptiness, in these teachings on emptiness, that we're replacing this idea, this constructed idea that there's a me running the show, doing my best to run the show, to understanding, no, there are lawful patterns. There are these impersonal feedback mechanisms. And what we call skillful or wisdom, that natural feedback mechanism operates based on clarity, right? Being intimate, being awake, seeing things as they are. Ignorance, right? is those patterns that operate on leaving some information out, right? So an ignorant pattern is a pattern that only sees what is self-generated, like the story that generates, and it interprets the moment based on the story. So it's a closed system. Wisdom includes everything. That's by nature, right? When we say the mind is wise, it's a mind that understands, it values being intimate, values feeling, values including, everything belongs because it knows that when the awareness is inclusive, is connecting, is open, then what unfolds, what conditionally unfolds, is going to be something unfolding based, having been informed by the whole, right? So just let's talk about that. It may make more sense when we talk about it in terms of society. 
If I'm in my little bubble and I'm oblivious to what's happening to you, I can live in all kinds of ways where I harm the earth, I harm other species, I harm certain groups of people because I'm in my bubble. But when I've trained my mind to be curious and trained my mind to be sensitive and trained my mind to see the systemic sort of underlying roots of how things are in the world, it's much harder for me to live in an oppressive way, in a way that oppresses others. But it's very easy, clearly, for human beings to live in ways that oppress other beings when we're unaware, when we choose, right, put our blinders on, choose to live in our little bubbles. Then it's easy for patterns of oppression to continue. Well, it's the same within our own hearts and minds. Same thing. So that's why mindfulness works and gets us out of these bubbles. So instead of saying, you know, I'm suffering, we just start to, wisdom starts to see, yeah, there are these patterns. I'm making patterns, mind making patterns, or sometimes we call it selfing. Right? And these are those closed loop systems where the mind is in a enclosed bubble all the solutions are generated within the bubble and they create the bubble. Me trying to solve my personal problem makes my personal problem. Me, for example, wanting to be safe makes me feel unsafe. Right? Needing to have safety as an ego, as a person living in a world, separate beast, me needing safety makes me attentive to how this, what I'm calling me, isn't safe. How it's always changing. Even if I have the good fortune to have a nice house or a nice mind state even or a nice friend or a nice bodily feeling, health in the body. Just because my mind has gotten dependent on that, there's no end to sort of making my health more healthy, making my mind state more pleasant, making my house more maintained or more solid or more protected. You know, more electronics surveillance or now, you know, if they've gotten cheaper, you can have all kinds of things in your house and you could constantly be looking right now like who's around my house and what are they doing and what's the cat doing and <laughs> it doesn't lead to a sense of safety, right? Do you think you know, before people had houses or they had big cars or they had this or that, do you think we feel more safe than humans before us? What's the proof that we feel more safe? I mean, in a way, we know more what could happen, right? There are asteroids out there. We don't know what their trajectory is. They could, you know, we really don't know. And we hear of and that gets so reinforced in the news. So there are these, you know, we're built up on patterns. This is what's going, and all of these patterns are inherently natural. They're just causes and conditions unfolding. And some of these patterns are, exist based on not seeing clearly, right? We see that, like, we're in the little bubbles. Mostly we see it in other people. Oh, 
he, she, this person over here, they're in that loop. I recognize that loop, right? And especially with our partners and close friends, we really see like when they're spinning in one of their loops. Like, oh yeah, that's just that little thing they're in. And maybe we even have ways of popping the bubble and they come out and, you know, but then we don't realize we're just in a different bubble. And more and more that we practice, we realize we're always in some bubble. It's just a question of how transparent or how much self-awareness there is that we're in one of these bubbles, right? And then we're cultivating this understanding, like learning to recognize the bubble as having a particular flavor of selfing, I-making, mind-making, M-I-N-E, right? There's something personal, there's something selfish, self-centered in most of these bubbles. And that is always, always correlates with dukkha, the sense of unsatisfactoriness, that tension, its limitedness. It never gets safe, ultimately. It has a restless, existential restless energy that we mostly, I mean, we see it almost always in life when we're not distracted. We notice that restless quality the chasing our own tail kind of quality. So to step outside, it's this deepening insight into the empty nature, right? So we have to see these closed-loop systems for what they are. It's just, it's natural. It's not some self being bad. That's a wrong interpretation. No, this is what this is what nature does when the system is based on not being open, not being mindfully aware. So this is the great discovery. The Buddha saw, studying his own mind, how much trouble we human beings get ourselves in when the mind has sort of picked up these habits of living inside of bubbles these self-sustaining bubbles that are defined or generated from based on not seeing clearly. And then the correction, it isn't easy, but it's simple. The correction is train the mind to see clearly. Train the heart and mind to be inclusive. Train the heart and mind to be open, not just in a moment, but continuously. So it's not easy. This is not an easy training, but it's not complicated. Because we know what this is like for a moment. We can, right now, most of us can have an experience of the mind being intimate, being open, being aware of the body and mind. Right? That just means in a moment, the mind, the understanding or the connection isn't being defined by our thoughts about things. That would be the closed loop way, right? Where the way we see the world is based on the story the mind is telling. But a moment of mindfulness is opening to what's here and now. You see, we don't trust it. We want to interpret it to ourselves. You see, when you open right now, because this moment is as good as any moment, there's a mind and body here, the experience of now, the experience of this. You don't need to interpret it You don't need to define it in language to yourself. It's just this. And then with some continuity, we can 
strengthen the value of inclusivity, of really like including more and more, like what else, is, what else can be known? What else can be felt? What else is here? That's just the mind, the clarity of the mind, isn't in the habit of sensing and isn't in the habit of being sensitive to, including. Oh yeah, there's this more subtle emotion or this more subtle bodily feeling or this more subtle mental activity that can be included, right? So it's like this awareness is learning how to feel into, open up into the activity of the body and the mind, whatever this is, whatever's happening here. And being less and less dependent on the mental interpretation, the conceptual interpretation of what's happening here, right? And see, that's how we step outside of the bubble. And then what unfolds, like the person, which is, it's okay to talk about ourselves as a person, as a self, it's just that the self isn't any particular story, it's this very dynamic unfolding. And so what unfolds from that place of clarity, well, it turns out to be very different than what unfolds when the mind is in its bubble of some thought, some story, some point of view, conceptual point of view. And that's the path of awakening. And it really starts with the first, generally speaking, the first insight is human beings begin to notice the suffocating tension of living in bubbles. Right? We start having insight into suffering, as we say often. But remember, suffering doesn't mean like what it feels like when you find out you have cancer or a good friend is dying or you've lost your job. That's a particular kind of suffering, no doubt. But this suffering, dukkha, is more of a existential, pervasive. So even when things are going well, and we have that proverbial nice house, nice relationship, nice job, nice body, nice this, nice that, and it's still not enough. And we want a new kitchen cabinet, new countertop, new, you know, whatever. <coughs> Spice it up. Make it a little better. And that restless, uneasy feeling is still there at the center of things, right? And then we get, oh yeah, oh yeah, what's that? What's that? That ongoing hunger in the mind. That ongoing uneasiness, restless uneasiness in the mind. Then we start getting really interested of being honest about the unsatisfactoriness. And see, that's where we start the awareness, the present moment awareness starts valuing present moment awareness. It's only the wisdom awareness that can value, like, oh yeah, maybe this is the way to a more sane, more stable, more happy, more light, more liberated life. Maybe this is the way. And it f that's a different feedback mechanism. So we wouldn't call this samsara, the cycle of suffering, the feedback of suffering. It's where there's a little awakening leads to more awakening, a little opening, a little deeper valuing of a awake, wakeful way of being, a kind, inclusive way of being, leads to more of that, more of that, more of that. And we start along a different path. Now, of course, there's two steps forward, one step back, but it kind of gets under the skin. We sometimes say in a joking way, you know, be careful 
once you start the practice, it's not easy to let it go. Yeah, you can stop coming to calm ground. You can even get distracted for years at a time. But it tends to reemerge in your life. Oh, yeah, what was that? What was that I learned a couple years ago about being mindfully aware, being present, being intimate, being undefended, bringing kindness to everything, every moment? being undefended and raw and vulnerable. Because the mind intuits, it's like a little quiet inner voice says, honey, I think this is the way. This is not that closed loop because we have been betrayed so many times in that closed loop. It always seems like it's going to deliver, but it never delivers. And we don't quite get it because we're so distracted by our distractions, we don't realize the closed loop. We just keep spinning and spinning and spinning. We see this, again, mostly with close friends, not so much with ourselves, because it's not as easy to see it in our own heart and mind. But like people who like get in a bad relationship, realize they're in a bad relationship, get out of it, and then fall in love or get in another bad relationship that's not so different than the first one or the third one or the tenth one. Right? It's the same thing with our relationship with food and our relationship with entertainments, pornography, uh, self-righteousness with news, um, ways of relating to our parents or authority figures, ways of relating to our subordinates, right? With these sort of closed loops. And we get burnt, but we just do it again the same way because we haven't bothered to cultivate that intimacy, that mindful awareness that then is taking in more information, basically, more intimate, more aware, seeing what the mind, feeling what the heart hasn't felt or seen before. So then the next loop, next time this situation arises in our life, now the mind is seeing and feeling more. It's a different mind. right? And if it's an unskillful pattern, then that's what we're seeing and feeling, how we're setting emotion, suffering for ourselves and others. No natural system consciously, intentionally sets in, in motion suffering. We only do it, we always think we're doing something good, right? We invaded Iraq because we thought it would be good. We did this because we thought it made sense. I mean, some people did. So we always do these stupid things fall in love in a, with a person that doesn't make sense or you know, whatever, whatever we do. We always do it because in the moment at least, it seemed like we were taking care of ourselves. But why didn't we see it? Because in that moment, the heart wasn't feeling what was there. The mind wasn't seeing clearly what was there. It was there. Everything we needed was there except the stable, continuous present moment awareness. That was the missing ingredient. And so the reason we refer sometimes to these teachings as teachings on emptiness is because to be in that mode of wisdom awareness, that present moment awareness, the mind has to be see the emptiness of its own constructions. Yeah, I have thoughts, I have these loops, I have these psychological patterns, but I'm beginning to see that they're empty of self which allows me to not be under the spell 
of the patterns. So you might do something now and trigger my defensiveness, but if there's enough wisdom awareness, I'll see that impulse to be defensive and how it colors and shapes how I might respond to what's going on in the moment, but I see it as an empty pattern, empty of me. It's not me who's defensive. It's just a psychological pattern being known. It's just that pattern, and it feels like this. And that seeing the emptiness of these psychological patterns allows us some freedom. And the more we do the practice, the more freedom we have. It doesn't mean that all of those psychological, emotional patterns that have been established in this mind through culture, through my life, through even the genetic conditioning, they don't go away, but wisdom, stable of wisdom is there not to be confused when they get triggered. And that's where the freedom is. So we have about five or a few more minutes. We don't have children programs today, so we can go for at least five minutes. It would be nice to hear from a few people. Questions that you have, comments from your own practice you'd like to share. Point the mic at your mouth like this. Who'd like to go first? Yeah, Emil, you want to start us off? Uh, thanks, Mark. That's a very interesting teaching. The concept of a bubble um, I struggle with, though, because I feel like I almost need a bubble to keep out all the greed, delusion, and uh, anger that that's, uh, surrounds me in, in my existence here on this earth at this time. And, uh, uh, I, and, I, and I make the choice to live in a bubble that can see, I can see through, but only let in what's wholesome. I feel more like you're talking about a shell that you can't see through, you're not seeing things, and you're just keeping all out without regard for things. So, because um, I, I need my bubble, man. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody got a needle? <laughs> well, we'll check and see if that's correct. Like, does Emil need his bubble? And that's the interesting question, and, and I think what Emil's talking about is true, that we do need, as one of our skillful means, is how to create a bubble that's more skillful than the bubble that would otherwise we'd be lost in, right? So we could call this the more therapeutic end of Dharma practice, right? This path of awakening. It includes replacing really bubbles that are very diluted, right? You don't see anything, and, it's, and it sets in motion really destructive patterns that cause suffering for self and others. But there are other bubbles, still a bubble, still seems, seems like it's me, still based on delusion, but it's a much less toxic bubble. And if that bubble allows us to let go of the more toxic bubble, that's an appropriate step to take. But where we're going and why we're spending time on the teachings of emptiness is the realization of no bubble. Not even the bubble of being a wise, empty human being. Not even that bubble. That's a more transparent bubble, one of the more wholesome bubbles. Oh, yeah, I'm really into mindful awareness. You know, don't get in the way of my mindful awareness. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really important to understand that we're, go we're moving in a direction, but for almost forever, we're going to have bubbles, right? But we should 
have a sense of the direction we're going with those bubbles. Yeah, thanks for the good point, Emil. Did you want to go next? Yeah, yeah say your name if you don't mind. Uh, Andy is my name. Uh, probably a rhetorical question, but is there any value in trying to get other people to see their bubbles? <laughs> If they ask three times. <laughs> and mostly people are not asking. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's a bubble too. You know, n- wanting to pop other people's bubbles is our bubble. <laughs> and uh, it's better to see our own bubbles and model doing the work of seeing our bubbles, finding better bubbles having moments of being free of all bubbles and then getting prideful, creating a bubble about that. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Andy. Other comments? you have time for maybe one more? Anybody else like to ask a question or share a little bit from your practice? Yeah, please. Um, this, this feels a, a little bit vulnerable, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, Oh, closer? Okay, all right. Um, hi, my name is Lynn, and I've been here intermittently over maybe the past year. And I, uh, around the holidays, things come up with family, and I'm gifted that my husband and I have a, have a marvelous son who we adore, and he's been dating a woman for the four and a half years who is real distant. It's, we've had her for dinner with our son maybe 20, 25 times, and there's just like the wall is high. And it's only so far, I'd like to know her better. I'd like to have some more level of intimacy, and I'm very, I'm kind of, I'm really sad. I'm also angry about it. And <laughs> um, Thanksgiving, of course, came, and our son was making a decision to spend the entire holiday with her family without coming back to spend any time with ours. And it made us, of course, disappointed, continuum and I just said you know I'm gonna really miss seeing you and your girlfriend and she's very welcome and the bottom line of all this is that I want to proceed with love I want to proceed with acceptance and there's just not anything coming back it's almost like our existence doesn't matter and it's, it's, it's disappointing it makes me mad it makes me sad and makes me wonder can I can I generously put my own ego need of wanting my son's girlfriend to like me, to care about me, to want to show up once in a while on the back burner and then just proceed with love without wanting my ego need to be met? And then I think, gosh, four and a half years, maybe they're going to get married, then they'll spend all the holidays or try... Yeah. <laughs> What about our rights as grandparents? You, know, <laughs> you can sort of see the whole thing unraveling, right? Yeah. <laughs> you just need a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm looking for some feedback. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Okay. Well, I don't, I mean, it just sounds, I can sense, even though I'm not, I don't have that same life situation, I can sense the kind of very real suffering in that. And, uh, I think actually instead of putting that pain on the back burner, the first step is to really honor, acknowledge and honor how much pain that is. Don't feel like it shouldn't be painful. It clearly is painful. And then 
your first and foremost job is to relate to that pain with wisdom. Like, what way of relating to the pain, the vulnerability you feel as a parent in this situation? What is the skillful way of relating? Not skillful in terms of like us judging you, like acting in a way where we would think, oh boy, you're such a special human being. But what's skillful in a way that actually addresses the pain you feel? What way of opening to your own pain, your own exposure, your own anger is actually helpful in alleviating that pain, that that tightness, right? To really own, there is a suffering human being here, and I care about her, and I want to do something. And I don't know what to do, but I'm committed to learning how to take care of myself in this situation. And then in doing that, really, instead of going immediately to wanting to be skillful with her, the partner of your son, really be more interested in being skillful with your own pain. And that might open things up in terms of creative ways of handling the relationship that you might not have thought about. But again, the creativity and how you do that dance with them over the years, that won't be something that you figure out. It's really going to come from, remember that image of roots, like really feeling what you're not willing to feel, seeing what you haven't seen. That's going to lead to more creativity in what you say, what you don't say, what you do, what you don't do in that dance with the two of them. And that really takes the burden of you having to figure it out. Just do the difficult work of taking care of yourself and feeling into your life and acknowledging the very real suffering that's there. Learning to meet it with wisdom and compassion and see where it goes. And I really appreciate you sharing with all of us. It makes the practice real when we look at these very poignant places in our life where it hurts. And we need to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Take a breath together. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.